1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone, and welcome into episode 56 of the Black Hand Pod, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about gangland involvement in the lives and murders of both Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. We'll talk about their backgrounds and how both were put into a position to headline the most notorious rap feud of all time, their rise to the top that would see Tupac turn into somewhat of a wannabe gangster, catching charges left and right while hanging with well-known New York gangsters. As Biggie joined up with Sean Combs and Bad Boy Records, making a name for himself, and their eventual downfall that would see both men gunned down in similar drive-by shootings that became two of the most notorious pop culture murders of the 20th century. And though they remain unsolved, countless theories have come up surrounding the killings, many of which have links to organized crime. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at The Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description, but without further ado... Let's get right into today's episode. I figured we'd start by talking about the backgrounds of today's two main subjects, their rise to high acclaim in the hip-hop world, their intense feud marked by historic diss tracks, and the circumstances that led to both of their demises. And first, we'll cover the story of Tupac, as he was really the first one of the two to hit it big. Tupac Amaru Shakur was born on June 16, 1971, in East Harlem, in Upper Manhattan. His parents, Afeni Shakur, and his biological father, William Garland, had been active Black Panther Party members in New York in the late 1960s and early 70s. And a month before Tupac's birth, his mother was even tried in New York City as part of the Panther 21 trial before being acquitted of over 150 charges. But by the 1980s, his mother found it hard to get work and began struggling with drug addiction. And in 1984, his family moved from New York City to Baltimore, Maryland, eventually attending the city's School for the Arts. Before moving to Martin City, California in 1988, an impoverished community in the San Francisco Bay Area. And though Shakur didn't graduate from high school, he later earned his GED. Then, just a year after moving to California, Shakur started recording under the stage name MC New York in 1989. He soon found a manager named Layla Steinberg, who managed to get him signed by Atron Gregory, manager of the rap group Digital Underground. In January 1991, 
Shakur debuted under the stage name Tupac with Digital Underground under a new record label, Interscope Records, on the group's 1991 single, Same Song. But by late 1991, Shakur released his debut album, titled Tupacalypse Now, which became certified gold just four years later. And by February 1993, Tupac's second album was released, becoming another critical and commercial success, debuting at number 24 on the Billboard 200. And it's here that we have to pause and switch over to the background of the Notorious B.I.G., because it was Tupac at this still early yet pretty successful stage in his career that somewhat gave Biggie his start. Christopher George Latour Wallace was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 21, 1972, the only child of a preschool teacher named Voletta Wallace and Selwyn George Latour, who was a welder and politician. But his father left the family by the time Wallace was just two years old, and his mother worked two jobs to raise him. He came up in the Clinton Hill neighborhood in North Central Brooklyn, and Wallace claims that he started selling drugs by the age of 12. He began rapping as a teenager, entertaining people on the streets, and performed with local groups like the Old Gold Brothers, as well as the Techniques. And at the age of 17 in 1989, Wallace dropped out of high school and became more involved in crime, as it was in 89 that Biggie received his first arrest for carrying a loaded, unregistered firearm and was sentenced to five years probation. The following year, he was arrested again for violating his probation, and in 1991, was arrested for selling crack, spending nine months in jail before making bail. But it was following his release from jail that Wallace started rapping, making a demo tape titled Microphone Murderer while calling himself Biggie Smalls. And although Wallace reportedly lacked real ambition for the tape, a local DJ called Mr. C of the Juice Crew discovered and promoted it, allowing it to be heard by the editor for a rap magazine called The Source. Then, upon hearing the demo tape, Sean Puffy Combs who was still with the A&R department of Uptown Records, arranged to meet with Wallace, who promptly signed to Uptown. But not long after Wallace's signing, Uptown fired Combs, who a week later launched Bad Boy Records, which instantly became Wallace's new label. Despite this, Biggie continued to sell drugs, and when Combs found out, he urged him to stop. However, in 1993, Wallace gained exposure on a remix of a Mary J. Blige single, and it was at this point in his career that he would have his first run-in with Tupac. Because in 1993, while visiting Los Angeles, Wallace asked a local drug dealer to introduce him to Shakur, and they quickly became friends. The pair would socialize when Tupac went from New York or Biggie to Los Angeles, and during this period, at his own live shows, he would call Biggie on stage to rap with him. And before long, Wallace reportedly asked Tupac to manage him, but he advised him that Sean Combs would make him a star. Though in the meantime, his lifestyle was comparatively lavish to Wallace's, who had not yet established himself. But Pac nonetheless welcomed Biggie to join his side group, Thug Life, 
though he would instead form his own side group called Junior Mafia. And by July 1994, Big appeared alongside LL Cool J and Busta Rhymes on a remix that would reach number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100. Wallace had his first pop chart success as a solo artist with Juicy, which reached number 27 on the charts as the lead single to his debut album. His first album, titled Ready to Die, was released on September 13, 1994, and reached number 13 on the Billboard 200 chart, eventually being certified four times platinum. But while Biggie was on the rise, Tupac was dealing with some problems at the height of his career, though most of them he brought on himself. Because really by 1993, Tupac seemed to have become obsessed with the gang life he rapped about, spinning from one altercation and arrest to the next. For starters, on April 5th, 1993, he allegedly threw a microphone and swung a baseball bat at a rapper named Chauncey Wynn at a concert at Michigan State University. Tupac was subsequently charged with felonious assault, but ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor and was sentenced to just 30 days in jail, 20 of them suspended on the condition that he complete 35 hours of community service. Then, in the same year, while slated to star as the character of Sharif in the 1993 film titled Menace to Society, Tupac was replaced in a hurry after allegedly assaulting one of the film's directors named Alan Hughes, for which he served just 15 days in jail. To close out the year, on October 31, 1993, Shakur was arrested in Atlanta for shooting two off-duty police officers named Mark and Scott Whitwell. The Atlanta police claimed that the shooting occurred after the brothers were almost struck by a car carrying Shakur while they were crossing the street with their wives, and that as they argued with the driver, Shakur's car pulled up and shot the Whitwells in the abdomen. But there are extremely conflicting accounts that state the Whitwells were harassing a black motorists and uttered racial slurs, and according to some witnesses, Shakur and his entourage had even fired in self-defense as Mark Whitwell shot at them first. In the aftermath, Tupac was charged with two counts of aggravated assault, while Mark Whitwell was charged with firing at Shakur's car, and later with making false statements to investigators. And Scott Whitwell admitted to possessing a gun that he had taken from a Henry County police evidence room. The prosecutors ultimately dropped all charges against both parties, but in 1994, Tupac's longing for the street life would come back to bite him, as he had recently befriended a pair of unsavory characters named Jock Haitian Jack Agnant and James Jimmy Henchman Rosemond. Haitian Jack was a real criminal who ran a robbery ring dubbed the Black Mafia, which included a notorious stick-up boy named Walter King Tut Johnson, who will become important soon. So when he and Tupac met, the two became close. Agnan supplied marijuana, women, and protection, while Pac observed Agnan to prepare for his role in the upcoming film, Above the Rim. While Jimmy Henchman was a criminal turned manager, though he never lost his mean streak, 
and later in life, he even received two life sentences for ordering the murder of a 50-cent affiliate named Lowell Fletcher. It was also arrested in the 2010s for drug trafficking, money laundering, and jury tampering. After running a cocaine trafficking ring, running drugs from Los Angeles to New York, allegedly making Rosemond over $11 million a year from 2007 to 2010. But during a 1993 visit to New York, Tupac met up with Haitian Jack, Jimmy Henchman, and Walter Johnson, where Biggie tried to warn Pac about hanging out with them. Then, in 1994, even heavyweight champion boxer Mike Tyson called Shakur up from prison and tried to warn him that Agnant was bad news, but he didn't take either of their advice. And on November 30th, 1994, Jimmy Henchman offered Tupac seven grand to stop by Manhattan's Quad Recording Studios and record a song with a rapper by the name of Little Sean, for whom Rosemond was acting as manager. Pac arrived with three other people, but as they entered the lobby, three men followed them, drew guns, and ordered Shakur and his entourage to lie on the ground. But when Tupac reached for his own gun in his waistband, the men shot him five times, grabbed his gold jewelry, and fled. And as Tupac was taken out on a stretcher, he gave the middle finger to Biggie and the other Bad Boy Records affiliates who were present, believing that Biggie and Sean Combs were in on the setup. Convinced that the shooting had also been a setup and that the shooters would return to finish the job, Shakur checked himself out of the hospital just a few hours after surgery. Later accusing Haitian Jack Agnant and Walter King Tut Johnson of being the shooters, though neither of them were charged for the attack. Though, about two decades later, Jimmy Henchman and an associate named Dexter Isaac reportedly admitted to their involvement, but due to the statute of limitations, neither were tried for the crime. However, as if the shooting wasn't enough, just a day later, Tupac was convicted of sexual abuse and was eventually sentenced to a year and a half, of which he served just nine months in a maximum security prison before being released on October 12, 1995. But a lot of things would change while Tupac was away, one being the rise of a rivalry between East and West Coast rappers, which was really ignited by Tupac's shooting. And it was the rise of Suge Knight and Death Row Records that not only took the rivalry to new heights, but would also result in the downfall and ultimate demise of Shakur. Born in Compton, California, on April 19, 1965, Knight came up as a football player and track star, but also became affiliated with the mob Pyru Bloods. From 1983 to 85, he attended and played football at El Camino College before transferring to the University of Nevada, where he played for another two years. He went undrafted in the 87 NFL Draft, but was invited to the Los Angeles Rams training camp. And though he was cut during camp, Knight became a replacement during the 1987 NFL players' strike and played two games for the Rams. And after his brief NFL career, Knight found work as a concert promoter and a bodyguard for celebrities like Bobby Brown. In 1989, Knight formed his own music publishing company, 
then formed an artist management company and signed West Coast rappers, DJ Quick, and the DOC. And it was through them that he met several members of the rap group NWA, which would give Knight the stage to show himself off as the true extortionist that he was. Because by the late 1980s, Dr. Dre and the DOC wanted to leave both their label and Ruthless Records run by Eazy-E, another member of NWA. So according to the group's manager, Jerry Heller, Knight and his henchmen threatened Heller and Eazy-E with lead pipes and baseball bats to make them release Dre and DOC from their contracts. It worked, and ultimately Dre and DOC co-founded Death Row Records in 1991 with Suge Knight, allegedly bankrolled in large part by a drug dealer named Michael Harry O. Harris, who was serving time for attempted murder as well as drug convictions. And there were even rumors that the company was being used to launder drug money on a continuing basis. And though Jerry Heller was a true scumbag in his own right, this set a dangerous precedent for what Suge Knight would be able to get away with, and it was this kind of intimidation and dirty business that would mark Suge's reign in the world of hip-hop. Despite that, Death Row found early success with Dr. Dre's solo debut album, The Chronic, which went on to triple platinum. It also made a career for Dre's protege, Snoop Dogg, whose own debut album, obtained a quadruple platinum certification in 1994. And it was with the backing of his new, incredibly successful record label that Suge was able to turn up the heat in the East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry when he insulted Sean Combs on air at the Source Awards in August 1995. And in the same year, Knight offered to post Tupac's $1.5 million bail if the rapper agreed to sign with Death Row. Shakur subsequently agreed and was released on October 15, 1995, setting the stage for his 1996 album, All Eyes on Me. However, his hatred for the East Coast rap scene had never been higher, because on February 20th, 1995, Biggie dropped Who Shotcha, and though Big and Combs would deny that the song was related to Pac's Quad Studios shooting, the subject matter and timing of the song's release would enrage the imprisoned rapper. So in an interview with Vibe in April 1995, while serving time in Clinton Correctional Facility, Tupac accused Uptown Records founder Andre Harrell, Sean Combs, and Biggie of having prior knowledge of the Quad Studios robbery turned shooting. And though Wallace and his entourage were in the same Manhattan-based recording studio at the time of the shooting, they denied the accusation. But Pac took it a step further, arguing that Biggie's style was a ripoff of his own and bragged about sleeping with his wife, Faith Evans. Then, Suge insulted Sean Combs at the Source Awards in August 1995, which was taken as a slight to the East Coast rap scene as a whole. And with all this tension between the two sides, things were bound to turn violent. And they eventually did, on September 23, 1995, when following a party at the Platinum House in Atlanta, 
hosted by Jermaine Dupri and attended by Suge Knight and Combs. Conflict between the two groups spilled outside the club, and a close friend of Knight's and blood affiliate named Big Jake Robles was fatally shot as he was getting into a limousine, and Knight inevitably accused Combs of being involved in the shooting, which may have some basis, as investigators into the shooting say witnesses reported that Puffy's bodyguard, Anthony Jones, was the shooter. Then, on November 30th, 1995, exactly a year after Pac was shot at Quad Studios, his close friend, Randy Stretch Walker, was shot and killed in Queens. Stretch was working with Nas at the time, who had just dropped the rapper off at home before he was murdered. In a little less than a month after that, Snoop Dogg and his crew's trailers were shot at while filming a music video. And while no one was hurt, the shots were a clear message to the West Coast rappers that they weren't welcome on the East. Then, on March 29, 1996, at the 96 Soul Train Music Awards, Pac and Biggie would come face-to-face -face for the first time since the Quad Studio shooting in 1994, which was followed by an altercation between the two camps after the awards. And just about a month after that, Tupac dropped Hit Em Up, one of the most notorious diss tracks of all time, in which he took shots at pretty much all of his East Coast rivals, including Biggie, his side group Junior Mafia, Bad Boy Records, Sean Combs, and even Mob Deep, another New York rap collective. But in the background, Pac's beef with Nas, which was part of the larger rivalry as he ran with Mob Deep, boiled over on September 4th, 1996, at the MTV Awards. After the award ceremony, Pac, with his death row entourage and New Jersey-based Outlaws crew, faced off with Nas and his Queensbridge goons at Bryant Park. And though there have been numerous accounts of the story to pop up, so each have to be taken with a grain of salt, according to Snoop Dogg, who was right there with Tupac during the confrontation, Nas had a hundred Queens shooters with him who were starting to surround the outnumbered death row crew. However, after some back and forth, tensions were diffused and Pac and Nas ended up shaking hands and leaving the park without incident. But despite this reconciliation, things were coming to an end for Tupac, though it might have ended up having nothing to do with the rap feud that he was so deeply embroiled in and more to do with the gangster facade that he adopted, starting really in 1993, reaching a new level once he hooked up with Suge Knight. And his ultimate downfall could have been the result of him stepping into a very real street life that he had longed to be a part of, but never really was. Because on September 7th, 1996, Tupac attended the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. But after the fight, one of Shug's associates, Trevon Lane, a member of the Mob Pyrus based in Compton, California, spotted a member of the rival Southside Compton Crips named Orlando Anderson in the MGM Grand lobby. Earlier that year, in July 1996, Anderson and a group of Southside Crips attended to rob Lane 
in a footlocker store at the Lakewood Center Mall in Lakewood, California. Lane told Tupac about this, who in turn attacked Anderson in the lobby. Shakur asked Anderson if he was from the Crips and punched him in the face, knocking him to the ground, at which point he and the rest of Knight's entourage continued to assault Anderson before being broke up by security. After the brawl, Pac returned to his hotel before leaving with Knight in a BMW after changing clothes and headed to Club 662, which was owned by Knight, to perform a charity event. But while they were stopped at a red light at around 11.15pm, a white, late model, four-door Cadillac pulled up on Shug's right side. The shooter, seated at the back of the Cadillac, rolled down the window and rapidly fired gunshots from a Glock 22 at Shakur's BMW. Tupac was hit four times, twice in the chest, one of which hit his right lung, once in the arm, and once in the thigh, while Knight was only hit in the head by fragmentation. Despite Shook's injuries and his vehicle having a flat tire, he was able to drive Tupac and himself a mile from the site to the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Harmon Avenue. They were pulled over by bike patrol, who alerted paramedics over the radio. After arriving on scene, police and paramedics took Knight and Shakur to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada, where he was heavily sedated and put on life support. But sadly, in the intensive care unit, on the afternoon of September 13, 1996, Tupac Shakur died from internal bleeding and was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. The official causes of death were determined to be respiratory failure and cardiopulmonary arrest associated with multiple gunshot wounds. In 2014, a police officer who claimed to have witnessed Shakur's last moments said that Tupac refused to state who shot him. And when the officer asked him who was the person or people who shot him, Shakur responded with what would end up being his last words, Fuck you. And though this is a pretty popular and tantalizing story, the account should be taken with a heavy grain of salt, as paramedics and other officers present at the scene never reported hearing Shakur say those words, nor did Knight, who was present at the time. But regardless of whether it was true or not, it was foreshadowing for how the investigation into the murder would go. Because a year after Tupac's death, Sergeant Kevin Manning, who headed the investigation, told a Las Vegas Sun reporter that Shakur's murder, quote, may never be solved. The case slowed early on as few clues came in and witnesses clammed up, including the entirety of Tupac's outlaws crew, and even today, no one has ever been charged with the murder, let alone prosecuted. And though the commitment of law enforcement in the case can be questioned heavily, other people who weren't part of the investigation continue to try and get to the bottom of it, resulting in the myriad of theories surrounding Tupac's death today, which we're going to get into now. And the first one I wanted to talk about, as well as the one that I find most likely was posed in 2002 when the Los Angeles Times published a two-part story by Chuck Phillips based on a year-long investigation titled Who Shot Tupac? 
in which Phillips claimed that, quote, the shooting was carried out by a Compton gang called the Southside Crips to avenge the beating of one of its members by Shakur a few hours earlier. Orlando Anderson, the Crip whom Shakur had attacked, fired the fatal shots. Las Vegas police considered Anderson as a suspect and interviewed him only once, briefly. Anderson was killed nearly two years later in an unrelated gang shooting. But Phillips went a step further and even posited that Tupac's rival, Biggie Smalls, provided the gun used in the murder, stating that Anderson used Biggie's 40 caliber Glock pistol to carry out the hit. It had previously offered to pay the Crips if they successfully killed Shakur. His feud with Tupac had even gotten so intense that Biggie allegedly paid the Crips $1 million for the murder. Though it's important to note that while it's a great investigative piece, the Phillips article was based on interviews with a series of informants who agreed to disclose their knowledge years after the fact and in exchange for anonymity particularly those who implicated two deceased individuals and whose allegations haven't been officially corroborated. However, Phillips's second article, I think, deserves a ton of credence. It assessed the murder investigation and said that Las Vegas police had mismanaged the probe, which I wholeheartedly believe, and his article enumerated the missteps of the Las Vegas police as follows. Number one was discounting the fight that had occurred just hours before the shooting between Anderson and Tupac's entourage in the MGM Grand Lobby. Number two was failing to follow up with a member of Shakur's entourage who witnessed the shooting, who told Las Vegas police that he could probably identify one or more of the assailants, but was killed before being interviewed. And the third was failing to follow up a lead from a witness who spotted a white Cadillac similar to the car from which the fatal shots were fired and in which the shooters escaped. Then, in October 2011, a former LAPD detective named Greg Kading, who was an investigator in the murder of Biggie, released a book alleging that Sean Coombs commissioned Orlando Anderson's uncle, Dwayne Davis, to kill Tupac Suge Knight for a million dollars. Kading and Davis claimed that Anderson was present in the vehicle that pulled up next to the BMW in which Tupac was shot. And on July 2nd, 2018, Davis confessed to playing a role in the killing of Shakur after revealing that he was dying of cancer. He went on to say that he was the passenger in the white Cadillac on the night of the incident. And though he refused to name the other suspects in the car, he confirmed that the shooter was his nephew, Orlando Anderson, and that it was a result of the MGM Grand beating, as well as the $1 million bounty by Sean Combs. Though I would take the theory of Anderson being the shooter with a grain of salt, because Davis refused to name the other people involved and laid the heaviest blame at the feet of a dead man. Though I do believe that both Davis and Anderson were in the car that the shots came from. Then, in 2023, Davis became the first subject to ever be pursued with any veracity for their involvement in the murder of Tupac. 
starting when Las Vegas police raided a home belonging to his wife after a judge signed a warrant to retrieve anything that could tie Davis to the Southside Crips. And they ended up finding 40 caliber bullets, computers and photographs from the 1990s, miscellaneous thumb drives, external hard drives, and audio recordings featuring Davis and other unnamed figures. And in the aftermath, authorities stated that they were possibly looking at first-degree murder charges for Keith D. And sure enough, on September 29th, 2023, a 60-year-old Dwayne Davis was finally arrested and indicted for murder for hire with the use of a deadly weapon with the intent to promote, further, or assist a criminal street gang in connection with the murder of Tupac Shakur. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on in the coming months if you're interested in the case, as he marks the first arrest of an official suspect in the murder. But before we move on, we'll have to finish the Biggie Small saga, as the final theory ties in to both murders. Following the murder of Tupac, Biggie obviously faced innumerable accusations regarding his alleged involvement in the hit, though he would of course deny them. Then, two days after Pac's death, on September 9th, 1996, Biggie and an associate were driving a car that collided with a guardrail in New Jersey, shattering Wallace's left leg, his associate's jaw, and leaving another passenger with numerous injuries. Biggie spent months in a hospital following the accident, it was even temporarily confined to a wheelchair. But by March 8, 1997, Wallace felt well enough to attend the Soul Train Awards after party in Los Angeles, California, with guests including members of the Bloods and Cribs. The party was shut down by the fire department at 12.30 a.m., while Wallace and his entourage and two GMC Suburbans left to return to his hotel. He traveled in the front passenger seat alongside three associates, while Sean Combs rode in the other vehicle with two bodyguards. And by 12.45, the streets were crowded with people leaving the after party. Biggie's SUV stopped at a red light about 50 yards away from where the event was held when a black Chevy Impala pulled up alongside it. The Impala's driver, an unidentified African-American man, dressed in a blue suit and bow tie, rolled his window down, drew a 9mm pistol, and fired four shots at Biggie's car. All four bullets hit Wallace, and his entourage subsequently rushed him to Cedars Sinai Medical Center, where doctors performed emergency surgery, unfortunately, to no avail. And Christopher Wallace was pronounced dead just half an hour after the shooting. Immediately following the murder, reports surfaced linking Biggie's murder with that of Tupac due to the similarities in the drive-by shootings. And shortly after Wallace's death, Chuck Phillips and a fellow journalist reported that the key suspect in the murder was a member of the Southside Crips acting out of financial motive rather than on the gang's behalf. The investigation stalled, however, and no one was ever formally charged in the incident but of course, there's tons of theories. But the main one I wanted to cover is the one that tied back into the Tupac murder. An ex-detective named Russell Poole conjectured that Suge Knight 
had Tupac killed before he was able to part ways with Death Row Records, then conspired to kill Biggie to divert attention from himself and the Tupac case. The Biggie murder theory implicated Suge Knight, a rogue cop, and a mortgage broker named Amir Muhammad, along with the chief of police and the LAPD in a conspiracy to murder and cover up the murder of Biggie. A key source of Poole's theory was Kevin Hackey, a former death row associate who implicated Knight and an LAPD officer named David Mack. He alleged that Knight had hired two corrupt LAPD officers with whom he had a prior relationship named David Mack and Rafael Perez. You can learn more about in episode 27, who conspired to and carried out the murder of Biggie, which could have some weight as Mack was a registered owner of a 1995 black SS Impala with chrome wheels, the exact description given as the car driven by Biggie's shooters. This theory states that the true target wasn't Wallace, but instead his mentor, Sean Combs, who was in the vehicle ahead of Biggie's on the night of the murder. Though it was alleged that Amir Muhammad, a friend of David Mack's, was the one that actually fired the shots. And the final theory I want to talk about comes from a 2006 Law Enforcement Task Force probe into the Biggie murder case, which included then-LAPD detective Greg Kading, which concluded that Suge Knight had contracted a member of the mob Pyrus and a former death row associate named Wardell Foos through his then-girlfriend Teresa Swan to carry out the Biggie hit. And after Swan confessed to being involved in the murder, the FBI sent her to meet Suge Knight in prison while wearing a body wire in order to extract a confession from him. However, Knight wouldn't end up saying anything incriminating in the investigation, like all the others, came up with nothing. When just two days after the prison meeting, Wardell Foos died after being shot ten times in the back as he rode around Compton likely as part of a beef between the Mob Pyrus and the Fruit Town Pyrus. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show, and tune back in next week for episode 57. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating, and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages, at the Black Hand Pod. And please feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.